0: MSW Media. We'll pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a -A 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 drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Andy. Today is July 5th, 2022. And it was on this day, 12 years ago, that my younger brother Brian died. We celebrated the 4th of July together, and like a lot of people do on that day, Brian got tuned up. Turns out a little too tuned up because in the early morning hours of July 5th, he and a buddy walked down to the Venice Pier in Venice, California, intent on jumping off into the ocean and swimming in for shits and giggles. Brian went first, and as we discovered later, got caught in a riptide, pulled out to sea, and drowned. Fortunately, the other guy didn't jump. Eventually, in an effort to uh, heal myself, I took off by myself, and I drove around the United States for nearly four months, visiting wineries, ostensibly to become the leading expert on wine in America, but really, it was to heal myself. And in many ways, I did. Eventually, that trip yielded a book called American Wino, Tale of Reds, Whites, and One Man's Blues, that the, uh, philadelphia inquirer described as eat pray love meets sideways while on the road i always like that so on this episode of the podcast 12th anniversary of my brother's death i thought i would read a few snippets from the book to remembrance of uh of brian and um if you'll indulge me we'll start with this one my brother brian is an artist not the kind that creates silkscreens of soup cans or paints with his own piss. Brian is a thrill artist. This makes him a lot of fun. Also makes him dangerous to be around. And terrifying to love. His crowning work thus far is his explorations into pier jumping. Specifically the Venice Pier, which juts out of L.A.'s bulk into the ocean like an obese cancer patient fucking a carney girl. Two polluted bodies press close each the other's bulwark against the coming apocalypse. It's about a 25-foot drop from the Venice Pier to the Pacific Ocean, depending on the tides. To hear Brian tell it, you're only in the air for a second, but it feels like you hang there forever, with the lights on the shore, the adrenaline in your veins, the relentless, hungry roar of the ocean below. You are a perfect being, suspended on an invisible string, burning with possibilities. Then you hit the cold black water and everything goes hard normal. You're wet. It's dark. The ocean is heaving you up and down and it's a quarter-mile swim back to the shore. Brian made his first jump in 2008 after a stupid boast followed by an even dumber dare. He was instantly in love. Something about the combination of physical activity, that quarter-mile swim, with a jaunty middle finger shoved in the face of authority. See, the pier is covered with signs that detail all the ways you will certainly die and all the fines you will pay if you don't. Plus, once you're back on shore, it's a two-minute walk to Hinano Cafe and all the beer. It was the perfect sport for someone who was never going to start for the 76ers, but could tell you without blinking that 76ers was 17.5 cases of beer and that if everyone throws in $5, we can afford Natty Light. The only time to jump off the Venice Pier is at night after it's locked down. The city locks the pier for good reason, so people like you and me don't go out there in the dark and jump off it and die like goddamn stupid idiots, because no one can see you because it's night. During the day, there are cops who will yell at you, and lifeguards who will swim out to get you if you get sucked into a riptide, and paddy wagons to take you to the police station afterwards where you will stand soaking wet and shivering in the air conditioning as they attempt to book you without the ID you left on the pier with your shoes and wallet. So yeah. Only idiots jump off the pier during the day when everyone can see them. The real dummies do it when they're invisible out there. When the pier is locked, the only way to get out to where the water is deep enough to jump into is to climb out and around the guardrail they hung over the water to stop assholes who want to jump off the pier. I never met an asshole like Brian. He figured out that if you clamber up onto the railing, then lean your body out over the water and swing around the metal grate that's meant to stop you from jumping off the Venice Pier, you can duck your head down. Get some footing on the other side and swing under. It's a good thing that grade is there. But weren't. Any garden variety half could get out there and perish. But Brian was no garden variety half wit. was an heirloom half wit. An adventure half wit. The ocean may be a cruel mistress, he once told me, but sometimes that's just what you need. Maybe so, Brian, maybe so, but I hated it. The jumping, that is. Every time he got drunk enough or riled up enough, dared by dicks enough to want to go jump off the pier, I tried to talk him out of it. Despite being a transcendent master of the art, Brian only gave four pier jump performances. I was only present for one of the jumps. So what the fuck do I know? Took some of my brother's ashes along with me in a mason jar on the trip. and Carried him throughout the entire journey. I also had lots of conversations with Brian in my head, I guess. But honestly, there were times where it, it seemed like he was there with me. Being on the road a lot uh, <laughs> yeah, plays tricks on your head, I guess. But um, anyhow. I, am uh, jumping ahead now, way ahead to Georgia. This is about two and a half, three months into the trip. And, uh, here we go. So it was one of those roadside antique shops you find in places that are just far enough from a city to be considered the country. This one happened to be in northern Georgia, right at the beginning of the Appalachian foothills. It was a good little spot. And for reasons I'm not entirely clear on, I purchased a 30-pound bronze ram's head there. Of all the items I could have bought at White County's largest consignment store, why did I choose a giant metal effigy of a farm animal? I'm not sure, but I'm fairly confident it has something to do with a budding case of Viocephatric Tia arbiosa. This is the technical term for what happens to your brain when you expose it for too long to a combination of fatigue, stress, the interminable flatness of the Great Plains, and a diet rich in donuts and Arby's. Then combine that with running over the occasional small house pet. Hey, somebody has to keep Arby's in business. Basically, when humans spend too much time behind the wheel, shit gets real weird. It's been documented. Sal Paradise didn't split for Mexico because it was prudent. Hell, he nearly died of dysentery down there, and it would have served him right. But see, all that time on the road drove him to it. That, and he was still pretty busted up over losing Terry and her kid. Plus, Dean Moriarty was this vortex of duende. He says, let's go to Mexico. You go to Mexico. You just do it. State of grace. Muskrat love. Excalibur, man. Originally, I named the ram's head Nacuchi after the village I thought I bought it in. It's only after I got home that I discovered that the Nacoochee Village Antique Mall is actually located about three miles northwest of Sauti Nacuchi in a tiny town called Helen. I couldn't very well change the Ram's Head name to Helen, not unless I wanted him to get teased incessantly by all my other weird collectibles. Poncho Sanzibelt, which is a shellac-dead frog from Mexico, has been made to appear like he's playing the congas. Well, he can be especially vicious. So after much deliberation, a.k.a. three glasses of wine, I decided to call my Ram's Head Michael Stipe. This, of course, is also the name of the lead singer of the greatest rock and roll band Georgia has ever produced, if you don't count Reptar, who are pound-for-pound one of the best bands on offer in today's kaleidoscopic indie landscape. Thankfully, Reptar didn't start up until R.E.M. was done, though, so the two never had to throw down. Plus, Pancho Sanzibelt is a huge Fables of the Reconstruction fan. R.E.M. is responsible for one of the three songs that never fail to make me think of Brian. According to R.E.M. bassist Mike Mills, Night Swimming is about the times in the early 1980s when the band and their friends used to go skinny-dipping after the clubs would close in their hometown of Athens. As nostalgia triggers go, I realize it's a bit on the nose. But I've found these things often are. For instance, every time I hear leaving on a jet plane, I'm reminded of my Aunt Louise, the one who died on the Pan Am flight the terrorist blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988. Even now, I get sad just recalling my story about Aunt Louise and how she lost her imaginary life just so that I could get out of taking a difficult art history final. In those days, I was a virtual serial killer with the focus on the family. Hell, by sophomore year, I'd killed off at least four grandmothers, a cousin or two, an uncle in a Fort Meade helicopter accident, and of course, poor Louise. I now realize that the only reason these tales were remotely credible was that the actual rubble and destruction in my life made them look in proportion. It's hard to tell when a kid's lying about his dead aunt when his real family is dropping like flies. But so the ram's head. It was a cold, sunny morning in November. I parked alongside the Chattahoochee River near Helen. Found a beautiful spot filled with lots of tall trees. My guess is they were pine trees, but I'm not sure. Dendrology is not my thing. The river was running strong, though. I listened to night swimming and surprisingly didn't cry. Not a single tear. It's usually automatic. So I listened to it again. Only this time I went ahead and grabbed the mason jar with Brian's ashes in it out of Carl Vehicle's Center console and brought it down so he could see it too. That did it. I wept like a best actress winner. And what if there were two side by side in the Ferris tight... I had pulled off the road to shoot up on raw sentimentality. A risky proposition for neurotics like me. Reminiscing makes me uncomfortable. It's a gateway drug to self-loathing. On an intellectual level, I understand that grief is a perfectly normal and natural response to loss, the same way that I recognize indictment and arrest are perfectly normal and natural responses to crime. Still, I find myself ashamed or uncertain about the way I process pain, in the same way no one in their right mind thinks the law enforcement system in the United States is a universally or even occasionally impartial instrument, and no amount of good cops you put on the street will change that. So I hope you'll pardon me for rolling my eyes when I pull myself over for driving while emotional. I look back at losing my brother, my girlfriend, or my dog, and alternately scold myself for taking so long to get over them and revile myself for being some kind of zombie robot sociopath for not being more broken up about them agonizing over whether or not I'm agonizing properly. It's a well-worn rabbit hole for me, given my ill-starred existence thus far. Half the time I worry that people are going to look at me and think I'm so full of shit, my eyes have turned brown. It'd be easier to disprove if my eyes were not, in fact, brown. Half the time I want to punch those same people for even entertaining the possibility. Luckily, the one thing that doesn't scare me is actually being full of shit. I've known that I'm full of shit for a very long time. It's pretty much the one thing I'm comfortable with in life. I'm grateful for the fact that on occasions I've had uncontrollable crying jags when listening to the three songs that remind me of my dead brother, no one else has been around. Next to that river in North Georgia, I just let it go and bawled. When night swimming was over, I switched to another R.E.M. song. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. I played that twice, too. Sang along both times. I feel fine. I feel fine. I feel fine. After a while, I actually kind of did. Then I opened the mason jar and dumped approximately two tablespoons of ashes into my hand and clenched it tight. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. I waited, holding on for just a minute. Be here for this. Don't rush. Now. I threw the ashes up high, ready to watch Brian atomize and float away on the breeze. The breeze, however, had other plans and blew about half of Brian back into my hair and face. Oh, hey, buddy. You smell like an ashtray. The mason jar was about half full now, or half empty, or twice as big as it needed to be. Rest in peace, George Carlin. That's great. It starts with an earthquake, birds, and snakes, and airplane. And Lenny Bruce is not afraid. summer's here friends and summer's the time for sipping on cool refreshing cocktails made with the best ingredients if i've said it once i've said it a thousand times you can Buy the finest spirits in the world to make craft cocktails at home but if you use crap mixers you're gonna get crap drinks let's face it whipping up cocktails at home can be a real pain in the ass and an expensive pain in the ass at that i always have time to go out and get fruits and veggies and squeeze them and juice them or I don't anyway, and that's why I am all about Fresh Victor. Fresh Victor is a line of all-natural, clean, label cocktail mixers that make the best drinks as conveniently and consistently as possible. All of the ingredients are fair trade source. There's no artificiality, none. And the bonus of a fresh mixer over a ready-made canned cocktail is not just the jump in quality and freshness, which is huge, but the fun of actually making yourself and your guests a kick-ass drink. And right now, Fresh Victor is offering a sweet summertime special exclusively for you listeners. What we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Simply go to freshvictor.com, fill up your shopping cart with these awesome mixers. Get all the flavors. Try them all. And at checkout, enter code WWD20, WWD20 to get 20% off your order. Don't hesitate. Now is the time to treat yourself to the very best mixers on the market. And that's Fresh Victor. In the fall of 2010, not long after Brian passed, 826LA held a fundraiser at the Writers Guild Theater in Beverly Hills. It was called I Found This Funny, an evening of music and comedy, and was hosted by Judd Apatow. The comedic thermonuclear device behind such films is the 40-year-old Virgin and Knocked Up. The event featured appearances by numerous luminaries, including Dave Eggers, Gary Shandling, comedian Aziz Ansari, and singers Randy Newman, Ryan Adams, and Fiona Apple. I, of course, was happy to lend my talents as well, and as a professional boozer, there's nothing I'm better at than scamming free drinks. And as folks tend to be more generous at these things once they've gotten a little chardonnay in them, I was asked to secure a wine donation. I sent emails to some contacts in the wine biz, and before you could say some people are just awesome, we had our sponsor, Bear Flag Wines of Modesto, California. On Saturday, about a week before the fundraiser, some friends took me out for an extended brunch because apparently that's what friends do when you're a few weeks removed from tragically losing a younger brother. My friends wouldn't leave me alone, frankly, and There seemed to be a direct correlation between people's level of sympathy and the amount of food they felt compelled to try and shove down my throat. Eat, eat, you need to eat. It's a constant refrain. They weren't taking me out for meals. It seemed like someone was always swinging by the apartment with homemade lasagna or chocolate chip cookies or noodle salad. I'm eternally grateful for that. The road to healing is paved with companionship and calories. And Cabernet. I got home a little before sunset. I had a solid buzz going and felt like keeping it that way. Elizabeth was working at the restaurant and wouldn't be back for several hours. This was me time, and I was determined to spend it with my most tolerable me. Grief counselors and psychologists and, oh, say anyone who cares about you will tell you that alcohol is not a healthy way to deal with loss, which is why I moved my home gym over next to my bar. Barbells cancel booze. That's just physics. Judge me if you want, but in the weeks immediately following my brother's death... I found that buzzed me was easier to get along with than say, weepy me, or angry me, or worst of all, woe is me. That dude was a real drag. A real American wine-o, if you will. (laughs) Kill me. So I went ahead and poured myself a generous slug of red wine, put on my headphones, and headed to the roof deck. I've been spending a lot of time up there, especially when I couldn't think straight enough to read, sleep, or even watch TV. I was keeping a good lid on the freak show most of the time, but my head was in a real weird place. I had nightmares, flashbacks, difficulty concentrating, irritable as a guar fan at a sting concert. But up on the roof, I could see the sand and the ocean, the beachgoers and boats, the infinite horizon and all its possibilities. A lot of the time back then, I felt like I was being slowly smothered, but for some reason, I could breathe on the roof. I'd call it my happy place if there was such a thing then. We'll call it my least crappy place. When people would come visit, I'd invite them up. Sometimes I could read worry on their faces. Other times, confusion. Especially if I'd managed to crack a smile. He's smiling? Up here? Of all places? My buddy Z was the only one to come straight out and ask me, How do you sit up here and look at the ocean that killed your brother and not fucking lose it? Dianetics, Z. How would you like to take a free personality test? To which he replied, how would you like a punch in the head? I'll take it if it means I don't have to eat any more noodle salad. I mean, seriously, why the fuck do people keep bringing that over here? I lost my brother, not my sense of taste. He said, you got good friends is why, you ungrateful bastard. I know, I said, and collapsed into a ten feet deep puddle of tears. Thinking about my friends and how good they were to me, guaranteed waterworks but I never once blamed the ocean for what happened to my brother. I have even, on darker days, entertained the notion that it saved him, which might sound strange because Brian drowned, and I'm pretty sure drowning is no walk in the park, with the possible exception of someone who drowns in a water park. But I'm a firm believer that there are fates worse than death, especially when there's heavy drinking involved. I've had a front row seat for the demise of many drunks and addicts in my life. Some went slowly and painfully, others took people down with them. Some checked out fast and violent, but when the deck got past Brian, he drew ocean. Like I say, it could have been much worse. I've read numerous studies that assert drowning is one of the easiest ways to die, which is to say least painful. It's kind of cheery literature you get into when you're dealing with this kind of thing. But come on, the only people who know what drowning feels like aren't around to give us a blow-by-blow. And even if they were, they couldn't compare it to being shot or stabbed or cuddled to death by puppies, which is, as we all know, the most adorable of deaths. Still, even though my logical mind knows it's probably bullshit, it's comforting to believe that Brian's death was peaceful. At his funeral in Pennsylvania, someone lamented that Brian's death could have been avoided. Bull fucking shit. I'm no expert in thanatology, but I am certain the death rate for human beings is still holding steady at 100%. We are all of us corpses in waiting. The Walking Dead. Future Worm Buffets. Brian was destined to shuffle off this mortal coil just like the rest of us. He just shuffled a little faster than most. 31 years old and in good health. Probably sounds young to you. But he wanted a cheap thrill at 2am, dammit, so he jumped off the Venice fucking pier. No more than a 100 yards from shore. At least that's how far out on the pier we found his watch and wallet. Brian was 6'2 and in good shape played sports competitively his whole life, and he was a good swimmer. 49 times out of 50, that big motherfucker makes it back to dry land safely, no matter how loaded he might be. Not this time, though. Not in the early morning hours of July 5th, 2010, when he splash-landed right into the roiling guts of a powerful rip current that grabbed him and, with brute assuredness, took him right the hell out to sea. My brother Sean once asked me if the authorities had given any indication of how far out the current had taken Brian before it finally let him go. Far enough, I said. We left it at that. So I'm up on the roof with my wine, and the day was getting ready to call it a night, but not before it did some showing off. The sun burning a red hole through the horizon like a giant cigarette butt tossed on the Venice boardwalk. Rumors is Fleetwood Mac's best album. Dreams, The Chain, Go Your Own Way, from top to bottom, pure gold but my favorite track from Rumors has always been Never Going Back Again. Lindsey Buckingham wrote it after his messy and public breakup with Stevie Nicks. It's a simple song about complicated feelings, and it features one of the most enchanting guitar riffs ever laid down. down. Only a handful of songs can touch it. Jimi Hendrix's Castle's Made of Sand, Nirvana's All Apologies, but none have ever gotten to me quite like never going back again. The song came on in the waning moments before the sun disappeared into the sea. I closed my eyes as Buckingham picked his way through the intro. When I opened them again, there he was, Brian, sitting in front of me in the chair, rocking gently and smiling. I'm not talking about an image of him, a memory. I mean, he was really there in the flesh alive undrowned my logical brain said i'd had too much wine brian couldn't be there but that's him i protested you've suffered a devastating loss my logical brain said you're experiencing some sort of ptsd induced hallucination bullshit i shouted well then you're drunk shut up i said if that's really brian and prove it reach out and touch him my logical brain said I wanted to, but I couldn't do it. I was afraid that if I touched him, he would disappear. Brian seemed to understand how scared I was. He smirked as if to say, what a pussy. Then he gave me a reassuring nod. It said, it's okay, man. Let's enjoy this. The song is only 2 minutes and 15 seconds long. Some people can hold their breath longer than that. I bet Brian had. No doubt he'd held on as long as he could. It was a tough motherfucker. Lindsey Buckingham wasn't singing anymore. The guitar plucking was louder. The big finish. But wait, what's the next song on the album? Fuck, I know this. It goes secondhand news, dreams, never going back, and... Don't stop. Don't stop. Brian loves that song. It'll soon be here, better than before, yesterday's gone, and here we are, up on the roof. But he wasn't. I looked over and saw an empty chair. My friend Jonathan is an actor, best known for portraying the most interesting man in the world, in a high-profile ad campaign for a Mexican beer. Jonathan and his wife, Barbara, were living on a sailboat in Marina del Rey. After Brian was cremated, my brother Sean and his wife Erin came to visit, and we all went out sailing. We took some of Brian's ashes with us on the boat so we could sprinkle them into the ocean. Some kind of peace offering. Sailed out about two miles from where Brian made his fateful leap. Jonathan wrote down the coordinates in his logbook. I joked that when I kicked the bucket, I wanted them to chuck me in there, too. Same spot. Oh, and fuck the cremation, by the way. Put my corpse in a trash bag and tie a cinder block to it. If I'm going out, I'm going out in an Irish luggage, motherfuckers. It was windy and the sea was rough that day. Sean had put the ashes in a ziplock. That too seemed appropriate. None of that fancy urn shit for us duns. Trash bags and ziplocks is how we roll. Sean busted out his stash of Brian and made the obligatory joke about cutting up some lines and snorting them like Keith Richards did with his father's ashes. Everyone laughed for a second, then got quiet. I looked around us and saw us rocking around in this vast expanse, and the whole thing felt ridiculous. We had a bag of molecules and we got onto a bunch of other molecules and used it to float on top of some other molecules so we could put these molecules in those molecules because these molecules are supposed to be special. And Sean dumped out the baggie and the wind blew it back all over us. Same trick as at the river. It always looks so perfect and sad in the movies. After we got back to shore, the most interesting molecules in the world and their wife came with me to the 826LA fundraiser. Being around people was still a little dicey, but live music is a powerful medicine, and Randy Newman is a big shambling panda made of love and bourbon. At the end, Judd Apatow came out and thanked everyone in the pack theater for contributing to the cause. He encouraged us to stick around for the after party in the lobby where they'd be serving bear flag wine. I felt like a contingently non-shitty human for almost an entire minute for having played a part in getting it there. Then just when I thought the lights were going to come up, Apatel said there was one more performance to go, from his neighbor, a guy by the name of Lindsey Buckingham, who walked out on stage with his guitar, waved to the crowd, and started picking out the intro to the third track off side one of Rumors, the one between Dreams and Don't Stop. It's called Never Going Back Again. Fuck you, Molecules. You made me cry in front of Judd Apatel. got one more bit for you i just want to let you know that if you like what you heard and you're interested in reading the book it's called american wino a tale of reds whites and one man's blues and it is available on amazon or wherever else you get your books and if you do pick it up and read it love to hear from you excuse me uh shoot me a note at the imbiber on instagram and twitter Also want to remind you that on July 13th, Wednesday, July 13th, I'm going to be doing a live recording of this podcast at the townhouse in Venice, California with Brad Williams, Kim Congdon, and Zane Lamprey on the bill. For tickets, go to townhousevenice.com. I'd love to see you there. All right. This last final thing I'm going to read for you. The trip ended with me giving a seminar at Pebble Beach Food and Wine, ostensibly as the leading expert on American wine. But really, I ended up just telling them about my journey and my talks with my brother and whatnot. And this um, it has to, is related to that, to what happened up there in Pebble Beach, I did have one unexpected moment in the middle of my talk when we gotten around to Texas. I told the story of going to visit Buddy Holly's grave at the Municipal Cemetery in Lubbock. How I'd arrived there in the middle of a sunny Sunday afternoon and been struck by the fact that there wasn't another living soul around. I get that Holly had been dead for 55 years and Lubbock isn't Grand Central Station, but still, not one other person? I hadn't planned to get into it, but somehow it just came out. I told the audience that my brother had died unexpectedly and that I'd taken a mason jar filled with his ashes along with me on the trip. I also told them about how I laid the jar with Brian's ashes right next to Buddy Holly's gravestone, which is engraved with the rocker's actual surname, H-O-L-L-E-Y, and that while snapping pictures, I found myself humming, Oh boy, and that I sprinkled more of his ashes on that spot than I had anywhere else along the way. I realized too late that I had ventured into shaky territory here. I could feel the emotion rising in me, the walls closing in just the tiniest bit, the yawning maw of the universe opening under my feet. So I moved on to Shelburne Vineyard, which makes an incredible Marquette Reserve, and hey, let's uncork some of this stuff, huh? What I didn't tell them about was the conversation Brian and I had there. You're kind of used to this thing by now. I was worried it was going to be a little much for the uninitiated. Brian told me that he hadn't seen Buddy Holly in the afterlife. In fact, in all the time he'd been dead, he hadn't met a single celebrity. I guess things there are pretty similar to the way they are here. Somehow the famous people are always hanging out someplace just slightly cooler than you are. What about limbs, I asked. Limbs? Yeah, you know. Dad's arm, Dennis's leg, whatever body part the drummer from Def Leppard is missing. Have you encountered any expired limbs? You're fucking weird, dude, Brian said. You mean weird like standing over Buddy Holly's grave talking to a jar of dirt weird? I'm a whole person, asshole. You were a whole person, I corrected him. Whatever, Brian said. I don't know where the limbs go. Someplace else. I'm not in fucking charge. I started humming Peggy Sue. Or maybe Brian did. If you could have done one thing before you died, I asked, what would it have been? Not jumped off that pier, he replied immediately. No, I mean, if you were going to die no matter what, but you got to do one last thing, what would it be? Okay. Oh, right, Brian said. Bucket list do-over. Hmm. While he gave it some thought, I hummed a few bars of La Bamba by Holly's ill-fated traveling companion, Richie Valens. Well, Brian said, if I could have done one last thing, I guess I would have told you guys, you know, our family, how much I love you called or texted or something. Does that count? It's technically more than one thing. Yeah, man, I said. It counts. Oh, and I would have had a karaoke showdown with Bill Murray, he added. That's two things. Why you gotta be so stingy with the do-overs, he said. You have to limit it somehow, right? That's how life works. Is it, he replied, and I didn't have a good answer. That was the last time we spoke on the trip. Or since.